Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. My words are spirit and they are life. In other words, he's saying the words that I speak have the ability to give you life. So, so when we're needing a deep, deep rest for a deep, deep tired, and he promises that he will give us that kind of rest, we can count on it. We can lean on it. We can draw near to him anticipating that that's, that's what he wants to give us. He's not mad at us because we're tired. He just wants us to know that when we get tired, he's the direction we need to go in. And he'd be tired from all kinds of different things, and, and we've, we've been over that in, you know, in, in months past and talked about how the Lord can give, and he specializes in giving a deep rest for a deep tire. I, I want to go from that into, into just, just this simple truth this morning. I heard a fellow say one time, the world is run by tired people. The world is run by tired people. If you're going to have a place of responsibility, sooner or later that place of responsibility is going to wear you out. It can be a mom, it can be a dad, it can be working for somebody, it can be having folks work under you. But there's something about weariness and there's something about having to press on through the things that will make us tired, cause us to be tired, that really, when it comes right down to it, is, is a key to our significance in this lifetime, our, our measure of greatness, in a sense, in our generation with those who know us. What do you do? How far can you keep on going when there's weariness? And Jesus, is, he's, he's saying you, you learn and learn it quick and learn it deeply. You bring your weariness, you bring your tiredness to me. Along with that goes this thought. There is a destiny. There, there, is, there is a purpose for you being here, for me being here. The purpose is, is not the same for everybody. We, we don't all grow up in the same family. We don't all grow up with the same places of lack or the places of privilege. But you're here for a reason. There is a destiny upon your life. And I want to spend a little time on that this morning and, and how, how we get suited for our destiny, where, where we get the strength from to pursue relentlessly but with joy, the purpose for which God has us on this place. Leonard Ravenhill is a preacher of another generation, but he made a statement that is striking in its clarity. If you have not heard this or if you've heard it but hadn't written it down, jot this down somewhere so it can come back to you. You can think about it. He says this, the opportunity of a lifetime, the opportunity of a lifetime lies within the lifetime of that opportunity. Can I read that one more time? 
everybody dreams about, everybody wants, everybody hopes for, the opportunity of a lifetime, if, if it's an investment, if it's a business opportunity, if it's a romantic relationship, but, but whatever. But there's a wonderful key, a powerful key of truth in the way he took that phrase apart. The opportunity of a lifetime lies within the lifetime of that opportunity. In other words, an opportunity is not going to last forever. If we sense something before us, if we sense something at hand, if we, if we sense that some way we're connected with making a difference or stepping out of a boat like Peter did that night, moving into an opportunity, it is a mistake to think that 10 years from now, five years from now, even 10 months from now, that that opportunity is still going to be beckoning us. It could have gone away. It could have gone to somebody else. Do I have a witness there? The opportunity of a lifetime lies within the lifetime of that opportunity. You know what that says to us in all capital letters? We need to have our eyes opened. We need to have our hearts sensitive to what are the God-made, God-given opportunities that he brings our way. Now, with that in mind, I want you to go back to where we camped out a little bit last week, and that was in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, and it was a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. But now we're going we're gonna to go from Ephesians chapter 3 pretty quickly, way back over into one of the early books of the Old Testament, the book of Judges, and the story of Gideon, the young champion of Israel. We, we all remember how Gideon was used, remember the story of how he was used of the Lord, handpicked by the Lord, to rescue the nation of Israel. There were, they had been oppressed by the Midianites and their allies for, for seven years. The Israelites would, would plant their crops, and at harvest time, in would come the Midianites like locusts, the, the writer says, and devour the planted crops, steal all the, the sheep and goats and cattle, and they were doing it year after year, and, and it, had, it had become such a place of defeat, such a place of expected defeat, that the children of Israel were, were hiding in caves and, and, um, and thickets in the hills of, of, of the area uh, there in Israel. There was no fight left in them. There was, there was, no, um, there was no sense of, of this is wrong and we need to do something about it. It was as if the entire nation had just accepted oppression as their lot in life until the Lord sent his angel, and some would think that the angel of the Lord was actually the Lord himself, Jesus, a pre-Bethlehem appearance of Jesus, who, who came and met Gideon and said to him, Hail, O valiant warrior, the Lord is with you. 
And where was Gideon at that time? He was hiding out in a wine vat, stomping out, threshing out wheat, afraid of the Midianites, trying to hide the, something that the Midianites wouldn't steal. There wasn't a thing valiant about him in those days, at least as he saw himself and others saw him. But he would go from there to, to lead a band of 300, and that's all 300 men. They, they, had a, they had a sword, they had a pitcher, and inside the pitcher was a lit torch, and then they had a trumpet, and that was it. And there were just 300 of them against this, this army that, that they lost count of, the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. And the Lord raised Gideon up and enabled him to do something that was, was, was just his moment in destiny for the nation of Israel. And God gave him the ability to, to muster the troops. And then there were 32,000 of them that showed up when the cry went out finally. And the Lord said, tell everybody that doesn't want to be here that they have permission to go home. 20,000 of them went home. There wasn't, there wasn't any fight in them. They just didn't want to, didn't want to fight. 20,000 went home. 10,000 were left. He said, take them, remember this story, take them to the brook, take them to the source of water, and watch how they drink. The ones that, that uh, the Lord has unusual ways of sorting out the, the crowd. He, the, the ones that, that put the water in their hand, bring it up to their mouth, and lap it up like that, no, mark those. And then the ones that kneel down on all fours and drink like a, uh, you know, drink like a, 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 a cow or a bull or a, or a sheep or a goat, mark those. Well, there were only 300 of them that picked the water up and they drank it out of their hand. And the Lord said, pick those. Because there were too many. 10,000 were too many. 22,000 were too many. 32,000 were too many. If there were, if there were that many in this fight, the Lord was saying, they'll, they'll take credit for it themselves. But I, I want there to be so few. I want them to be such a small group. And I want them to be doing it in the middle of the night with nothing but a horn to blow and a, and a sword, not for the purpose of fighting somebody with, but, but, but to break the pitcher so they can, they can cause the, the lamp to shine. And then, and then I want them to shout. That's the only fight they're going to do so that all the credit will go to me. Well, you remember that story. That night, the night came, and they, the bands of 300 broken into three groups. They surrounded on the hills surrounding the encamped enemy, and when the, when, the, when the sign signal went up, they, they blew the trumpet, broke the pitcher, raised the torch, shouted to the, the sword of the Lord and to Gideon. And it so freaked out the ones that were there. They thought they were surrounded by this huge, vast army, and there were just 300 of them. They got so scared, they got mixed up and got to killing each other in the middle of the camp. Thought they had been invaded. And then Israel came in and was able to to win the day, throw off the yoke, and there's the story of Gideon and his 300, the mighty, the mighty warrior. Well, I just need to tell you, Gideon, Gideon in the beginning was not anything like the man that he ended up being Gideon in the, in the end. What in the world happened to him? What in the world happened to him? Jesus would say, it's to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit will not come. But if the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will open your understanding so that you'll be able to even be able to perceive as I give it to you things that, that are yet to come. 
He, he, will, he will bring to your remembrance the things that I said to you. In other words, it's to your advantage that the Spirit comes because He will be able to do more in you than I am able to do right now as one person outside of you. But the Spirit will come, my Spirit, my invisible presence will come to dwell inside you. Okay, if Jesus said that about the coming of the Spirit, it is to our advantage that the Spirit will be given to us a greater advantage than even if Jesus was physically present then aren't we also to conclude that our position now with the availability of the indwelling presence of Jesus inside us today puts us at a greater advantage than even Gideon had back in the book of Judges before Calvary, before the empty tomb, before the day of Pentecost, before any of the scripture that was written to speak of all that we would have and all that we would, we would be blessed with. It seems as if we are to understand that what God did in speaking to and equipping Abraham for his task, for his moment in destiny, what God did with David, equipping David for his moment in destiny, what God did with, with Gideon and others, what he did to equip them, he is able to do in us today. That we are not to look at Gideon's story and say, oh my goodness, how could that ever be? Great for good. Go out of boy Gideon. We're to understand that was, that was before Jesus died on the cross. That was before the empty tomb, the resurrection, proving that we've been forgiven. There doesn't have to be any other sacrifice made. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. That's over with. The blood of Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against our sins. And then, and then also the coming of the Holy Spirit wasn't, in those days, as we'll see with Gideon, it was, it was God visiting him. It was, it was the work of the Spirit upon him for that moment. But you and I, brothers and sisters, have the promise of the indwelling, permanent indwelling presence of the living Christ who has conquered Satan who has defeated the lies of the enemy. And he has poured out his spirit to come and live inside of us so that we look back at the Old Testament as examples of what God can do. Not what he's not ever able to do again, but if he did that in that dispensation, in that way of dealing with people, just visiting them and then leaving, what in the world is God able to do? In a life that says, Lord, I want all of you. I don't want you ever to lift your presence off of me. I want you to take my thinking thoughts. I want you to take my sleeping thoughts. And I want you to use it all for your glory and all for your praise. What in the world might God do with a life like that? All right, now that, that's where we're headed. Let's go to Ephesians 3. And let me just read down through this prayer again. Ephesians 3, verse 14. Paul is praying for these he loves. And as he prays for them, it's the Lord's heart for us as well, all these centuries later. For this reason, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you 
according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that with the result being as he has strengthened you with power by his spirit in the inner man with the result being that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know, to know, experientially know on the basis of relationship with the object that you may know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able, now watch these words, folks. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Not the power on the far side of solar system. Not the power vested in some architecture or some geographic location, but according to the power that works within us. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above what we could all ask a thing. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. All right, now stay with me. Stay with me. For Gideon to understand that he was called for greatness, that he literally and actually in the mind of God was picked out for something that no one in his family had ever done, that no one in the culture of the generation around him was contributing to. In order for him to know that, be able to move in the direction of his destiny, he had to know some way, somehow, that God, the God in heaven cared about him. That he wasn't just a pawn on some arbitrary chessboard. That he wasn't just some piece of equipment. But that some way or another, the God of all creation knew him, desired him, and wanted to use him. Here we find it put in this way. Paul could have asked the Lord for any number of things. You, you, you make your list. All, all the kinds of things. Well, God, give them, give them more money so, that they're, they're, so they'll never run out. Give them a formula for wealth so that they'll, they'll never run out of any kind of material. He, he doesn't even bring up money. He doesn't even bring up gold. He doesn't even bring up stuff. What does he bring up? He says, Lord... I'm asking you to strengthen them with might by your spirit on the inside of them, the deepest part of them. Strengthen them in the place that they can't strengthen themselves. Go deeper than they can even reach. Do something for them that they can't do for themselves. What is it, Paul? It is to be strengthened with might in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith, so that by faith 
by faith, not by sight, but by just knowing in your knower. I'm not an orphan. I'm not a vacant warehouse. Christ dwells inside me. I'm not saying it. I feel it. I'm not just declaring it. I know it. Do you understand that? How important that is. Paul's saying when that happens, it's as if they are invincible. It's as if everything they have can be taken from them. Even family relationships could be destroyed. Persecution was coming against the church. Their businesses would be plundered. Their personal accounts and wealth would be taken. Homes gone. Families ripped up. How are you going to keep going when everything you've looked at and enjoyed looking at and been blessed to experience has been taken? He, he doesn't say, Lord, give them enough stuff to satisfy the anxious places in their lives. He said, Lord, here's what I'm asking you to do. Give them something that this world can't take from them. Give them something that folks walking out of their lives can't take from them. Strengthen them with your power on the inside so that they will know that Christ lives in them and the effect of Christ living in them will be this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love. Men, don't, don't check out on this with me. Well, I'm a man, I'm tough. No, you're not, Jack. No, you're not. No, I'm not. Somebody can break my heart. Somebody can disappoint you. Somebody can do things that are rough and cold and harsh. Well, I'm just a man, I can take it. Oh, give me a break. That's why we booze ourselves to death. That's why drugs and so forth have, have a role. That's why prostitutes have a business. Trying to find love in that old song in all the wrong places, but we're still hunting love. God knows that about a man. He knows that about a woman. He knows that about a younger one. He knows that about an older person. He knows that about married. He knows that about single. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, said, wrote this out, this prayer, given to him by the Spirit. Lord, strengthen him with might by your spirit in the inner man so that they will be rooted and grounded in your love, that they will know you love them. And John will say, we love because he first loved us. We love back. We have the capacity to reflex love back because we understand he loved us first. I don't start out loving God. My heart and your heart has to be won by him. I tell you, Paul, Paul just stays on this thing of love, the love of God, knowing the love of God, the power of the love of God, kept by the love of God. Love, 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 Paul. Why? Because before he met Jesus, he didn't know anything about the love of God for him. That's what broke him. That's what won him. He said, I've kept the law. I'm a Pharisee. I've got, I've got the strictest, strictest regimen of, of moral behavior that there is known to man. 
But you can have all that and be mean as a snake. You can have all that and be so centered with selfishness. But it was the love of the living Christ that melted Paul's heart. He would say, it's the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay, I, I know when I get to hollering, y'all get to, and that doesn't sound very loving. He's just hollering at us. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be hot. I just, when, I'm, when I'm fired up and I'm convinced about something, it's just hard to turn the volume down. I, I mean, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to be cute. I'm just saying, this isn't about being mad. This is about saying to folks, all of us, it wouldn't be in the Bible. Paul wouldn't be praying it as the major theme for the Ephesian church if it wasn't something that was not common to all folks in the church. We need to be reminded. We need to be convinced that he loves us, that he loves us, that he loves us, and that from that place I can love him back. But also from that place, here's what happens. A confidence rises in my heart from knowing that he loves me. They would even say about Peter and John, you remember that's in Acts 4, when they observed the confidence, the boldness of Peter and John, the Pharisees and Sanhedrin understood that they must have been with Jesus. Well, where did the confidence come from? The Spirit empowered them, yes, day of Pentecost, but what did the Spirit do? The Spirit convinced them of the love of God, that even though Simon Peter denied the Lord three times, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus working in his side, his heart melted that self-condemnation, washed away the shame from that, and filled him up, knowing that you, you, you may not like me. You, 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 you say we ought to obey you rather than God, but you be the judge. We can't help but give witness to what we have seen and what we've heard. I mean, it was as if all of the threats and all of the possibilities in the negative sense that just seeing those men arrayed against them just as they were arrayed against Jesus had no effect on those two men because those two men were drenched in the love of God in their hearts. Shed abroad, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You, you, you find yourself a little shaky sometimes. Find yourself needing to run over here to be reconfirmed. And get a little encouragement. Nothing wrong for us from us getting encouragement from folks who love us and so forth. But, but one of these days, that source and the ability of those to say things that help prop us back up has the ability to lose its power. But when there is this steady stream of being filled with the love of God, there comes to be a steadiness in your life. There comes to be a, a measure of an unshakable steadfastness in your life because you're not having to chase the approval of people. You're not having to chase the attaboys. I love you. You're wonderful. Paul is saying, Lord, strengthen them. Strengthen them with your spirit 
in their inner man, the inner woman, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith, that they may know he's alive within them and that they would be rooted and grounded in love and be able to comprehend the, the, the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled up, and this is an amazing statement, that they may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Fill them, Lord, and keep filling them. Fill them, Lord, and keep filling them that they may be filled up to all the fullness. What is the fullness of God? He gives us the understanding of that. The fullness of God is the love of God. It's not necessarily the knowledge of God, though there's nothing he doesn't know. It's not necessarily the power of God, though there's nothing he can't do. But Paul says, if you want to know the fullness of God, here's what it's going to be. It's going to be you knowing his love for you in the center of who you are. And it's not, just a, it's not just a page in a book on a shelf. It is an active operative in your heart that I know. That I'm, and I realize as I'm saying this, we can all be saying, well, Pastor, I, I, I believe that's true. And I need that. But I can't tell you that 15, 18 waking hours of my day that I'm, I'm, I'm all the time convinced of, of the love of God. I got all kinds of stuff going on in my life. And there are things that can deplete that sense of confidence. That's why, folks, that's why church, church, hear this, hear this, brothers and sisters. Hear this, Alamos. That, that, that's why Paul said again at the end of Ephesians, in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine. Don't be brought under the control of wine because that's wastefulness, dissipation. It's a, it, it's a waste of, of, of effectiveness in contrast to that, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Allow yourselves to be continuously being filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit is going to mean that we're going to know that he loves us. And as a result of, of knowing that he loves us, there's going to be a confidence that he's not going to abandon us, that he's not going to leave us. There's a confidence to surge forward, to step forward into, folks, what our destiny is. If it comes from a place of knowing that we're loved, of knowing that we're accepted, of knowing that he's in me, then whatever it is that he assigns me to do, I'm understanding ahead of time. I'm not going there by myself. I'm not going to be expected to do that in my own strength. Lord, it is, if it's something that you're calling me to do, then I'm blessing you because I understand that you love me when I don't deserve to be loved, when I haven't earned your love, but you have made your love known to my heart. I'm going to keep walking with you. I'm going to get out of this boat if you're calling me to get out of this boat. I'm going to even trust you, as Gideon would say, I don't know how you're going to do it, Lord. I suppose you can hit a long leg with a crooked stick. Long lick with a crooked stick. I am a, I am a, I am a crooked stick, and this is a long leg. Deliver a whole nation. But if you say you can do it, I'm going to trust you. Because you've won my heart, and you're coming to own my heart. 
Okay, go, go back. Let's, let's look at Gideon here for just a minute. Book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges, chapter 6. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Wasn't evil in each other's sight because they were all doing it. They're all carrying on. Did what is evil in the sight of the Lord. That word can mean malignant, noxious, injurious, hurtful. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian, their enemies, seven years. You know, here's something sometimes we forget, but we better not forget. The same hand of God that protects. The same hand of God that provides can also be lifted. Not because he doesn't love his people. It's because he loves his people so much that he does not want the things that they've chosen to do in violation of his heart to destroy them. The wages of sin is death. So to get our attention, To get our attention, sometimes the Lord lifts his protection and hurt comes. He didn't cause it, but we weren't responsive to his protection. We violated, we we, we chose to do some things that grieved him. That's why sometimes provision dries up. The hand of provision dries up. Even though we know him, even though we we, we say that we love him, we can sing songs, we can tell Bible stories, we've got marked up Bibles. But in our hearts, we have chosen to go some ways that, as this word would say, are noxious, malignant, hurtful to his heart. So, folks, listen, he doesn't have to keep taking care of you. He doesn't have to keep protecting us. He desires to. It's in his heart to. But this is an example of folks the Lord wanted to bless. But because they were choosing things to do that grieved him, that which they counted on from him, that it's going to rain, the enemy's going to be kept at bay, going to have good health. He just lifted his hand of protection and his hand of providing. The Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. And the power of Midian, verse 2, the power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian, the sons of Israel, made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and caves and the strongholds. They were hiding out, couldn't live in the towns. For it was when Israel had sown, planted their crops, that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them, the the enemies would camp against and destroy them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would would come in in, in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. And 
They came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Isn't that when we start crying out to the Lord sometimes? When we have been brought very low. Now, you know, the Lord knew that continue to prosper, to continue to bless, to continue to, to have the barns filled with fatness and so forth, that if you continue to do that as they were turning away from him, it would do nothing but confirm their, their departure from him. So he lifts the protection. He lifts the provision. And it's not very long before the children of Israel began to do what they should have been doing all along crying out to the Lord for his mercy, crying out to the Lord, crying out to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and and he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the land, out of the house, from the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispersed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed me. I delivered you. I rescued you. I gave you land. I gave you houses that you didn't build. But you have not obeyed me. Then the angel of the Lord, the plot thickens now as far as Gideon goes, verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord, some will say this may have, may have been Jesus in a pre-Bethlehem appearance because Gideon will refer to him as the Lord here in a minute. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. You know, we, we don't live in that agricultural setting, but bottom line is you, that, that's not where you, where you process wheat in a, in a wine press. A wine press was a pit, low place, out of sight typically from, from the horizon. Gideon was down in the, in the wine press beating the chaff off of the grains of wheat so that the Midianites wouldn't see what he was doing. Then they wouldn't know where to come and steal what had been grown, what had been hidden from them. He was beating out wheat in the wine press. That, that wasn't a, an indication of great bravery. It was an indication of perhaps cowardice, but also just trying to survive. Just trying not to get caught, have something to eat. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord... This just, this just brings a chuckle. Any way you cut it, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Oh, valiant means strong, powerful, capable, virtuous. The Lord is with you, O you valiant warrior, you. Well, where was the valiant warrior? hiding out because he was afraid, not leading a charge, but just trying to find some place to have enough to eat. 
And Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, I want you to notice the difference. One is is a singular pronoun, the other is a plural pronoun. The Lord is with you, singular, O valiant warrior. Gideon hadn't caught it yet. He he realized that, that he was on the spot, that he was about to be up to bat, that it was about to be his moment in destiny. It was about to be something that he could have the opportunity to be remembered for for all time or not even make an asterisk in the footnote. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, not with me, but with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord looked at him. That's another reason why we wonder if this might not be Jesus, because it's not saying the angel of the Lord anymore. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength. My words are spirit and they are life. Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Indian." From Midian, have I not sent you? Back up to Gideon's response. Here was the cultural theology. Here, here, was, here was how they viewed God up to this point. And this, this, was, this was not unique just to Gideon, of course. He, he'd gotten it from somewhere. He was young. He had heard this. He had heard the deliverance stories. God rescued us through Moses. God brought us out. God brought us into this land. Why then has God left us? He he wasn't able to connect the dots until the Lord personally revealed to him what the problem was. The problem was not that God had left his people. His people had left their God. God had not left his people The people have left their God. God has not left his people. The people have left their God. That's why in some family lines, there's all kinds of religious tradition. There's all kinds of knowledge of songs and scripture and stories of what God has done. But there is absolutely no connecting of the dots as to why it is that the provision and the protection and the favor of the Lord has been lifted. And it is because within the family line, within the cultural group, things have been chosen to be done that have broken the heart, have grieved the heart of the God who provides and the God who protects. You don't connect those dots and you can spend your days, well, why has God left us? Why has God left us? Why has God left us? No, that is not the question. Why did we leave God? Why did we come up with another set of rules? Why did we think he grazed on the curve? Why do we think the rules are are meant for every other individual except for me? And, And the rules, by the way, nothing other than a way to protect civility in a culture, in a family, to protect, to, protect what, to protect the ones he loves. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't cheat on your wife. 
Because when those things happen, trouble comes into the mix of the family or of the culture. It's because I love my people that I say don't do this and do that. It's not because I'm trying to restrict you of things that I would want you to enjoy. There's a right way. And then there's a wrong way. And the wrong way is always going to bring some kind of death until the wrong way is stopped and forgiveness is sought and the right way is implemented. But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. It's interesting what the Lord then says to Joshua. He looked at him. Go in this your strength. What kind of strength? The strength of knowing that God's presence had drawn near to him. That he was in the Lord's presence and he wasn't struck dead. That he was in the Lord's presence and he was hearing the Lord's voice. Folks, listen, listen to me, please. Jesus said, it's better that I go away. Because if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to you and he will not just come and leave. He will not just empower for a season and be gone to something else. He will make the presence of Jesus perpetually, permanently, real in your chest and in your mind and in your will. It is the strength of knowing his presence the strength of knowing that you are in the presence of God and the strength of knowing that he's chosen you. (laughs) He's chosen you. He's picked you out because he loves you, because he desires you, because he knows you've been created for good and not for destruction and disaster. Go in this your strength and deliver Israel. from the hand of Midian. The word for deliver is a verb from which the word Yeshua comes from. Yeshua is the Hebrew word for Jesus, the Greek word in the New Testament. I'm just praying somewhere along the line, somewhere out yonder, this is going to drop 18 inches and somebody's going to have a fit. You go, in this your strength. The strength that you're seeing, you're in the presence of God. And you are hearing that he has chosen you because he loves you. And here's your new assignment. You go and rescue the nation of Israel. You go, the word, the word to deliver means to set free. To set free in the sense of bring them into a broad place, a wide open place where there are not all kinds of restrictions or reasons for fear, but a broad, big open place. Turn me loose, set me free. Somewhere in the middle of Montana, I couldn't believe it, that that song just came up. (laughs) Turn the big city, 
turned me loose and set me free. Let me move on here. That's not anybody's hymn book. But the gist of it is, freedom is about being in a wide open space where you're not having to be fretting and swatting nets and afraid of who's yanking on you. That's Jesus. At the root of his name, he came to set the captives free. He came to cause there to be an expansion of an explosion of who you are led by his spirit so that you can go in any direction with the power of God that he takes you in. You go and deliver Israel in the strength that you give. Now, folks, the first thing he was given to do was to go and get a, get a bull and get somebody else's bull and head toward the, the idol of Baal worship and the one set up next to it that was a fertility goddess. And the Lord said, now if you're afraid, the Lord knows us. He knows us even though we chose us and we've got strength and all those things. He, he knows us. So if you're afraid, you can go pull them down by night in the middle of the night, which is exactly the option that Gideon opted for. Loaded up, headed out, pulled down the altar to Baal. Pulled down the Asherim. The next morning, the community went nuts. Even though this was supposed to be a God-fearing community, they were all afraid that they were about to upset Baal, this fake God, this false God. Gideon's daddy encounters them. They're ready as they've tracked it back to Gideon. His daddy intercepted the group. And he changed Gideon's name in that moment. He changed his name to let Baal contend against him. In other words, if Baal's real, if Baal's strong, if Baal is really worth of all of our trust, your trust, then let Baal be the one who comes against my son Gideon. So from that point on, you will hear those two names for Gideon. Gideon and Jerubbaal. Jerubbaal. Let, 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 let Baal contend against Gideon if he's all that we've claimed that he would be. And of course, Baal didn't do anything. And Gideon moved from one step in nine times. I counted nine times in these two chapters, six and seven, where it says the Lord spoke to Gideon. He didn't, hear, hear me, Gideon didn't get the whole plan in the, in the first 30 seconds of the first quarter of a four-quarter game. He, he, he didn't have it before the game started. The Lord said, you go in the strength that I'm giving you, and the gist of the rest of it would be, I will give you the steps as they unfold. My brother and my sister, when it's time, it's time. When it's time for you to step into your destiny, it's time. The opportunity of a lifetime only lasts within the lifetime of that opportunity. And the Lord may not give you all the plans, may not even promise necessarily the full result, but he'll give you 
what you need as you need it, and it will be accompanied by a fresh strengthening of the sense of his presence, of his voice to your heart, and you'll be freshly reminded that he loves me. Gideon went back, you know, all those times, two, two times, and he fleece, fleece. Lord, if it's really you, then I need you to help me understand this. I need to be sure. Dry, dry fleece, wet ground. Well, I want to make sure that, you, that that's really good enough. So here's number two. Wet fleece, dry ground. And the Lord put up with all that. The Lord handled all that. He knew that Gideon needed to be convinced as he moved forward in his calling. Paul again praying that we would be strengthened with might, with might by his spirit in the inner man so that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith and that we being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the length and breadth and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. Listen which surpasses knowledge. Why is that so important? It's because when we understand the love of Christ, when we know experientially, not, not just as a, as, as, as a line item on a, on a report sheet, but that we know experientially, we are convinced out of the relationship with the one known, his love. There comes to be a steadiness. There comes to be a determination there comes to be a joy, serve the Lord with gladness. The joy of the Lord is our strength that flows from being convinced that he loves you. And here, let me tell you, here's what will happen. For some of you, read all the verses on the love of God. Read and memorize everything you can get out of Song of Solomon and so forth. Everything on love. You got all this head knowledge of Love, 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 love. And you still, if the truth is known, it hasn't dropped 18 inches. You're trying to convince yourself that he loves you. When it's all said and done, it will only be by the power of the Spirit of Jesus that we will be convinced of his love for us. That's why Paul doesn't let up and he puts it in that imperative. It's a command. I command you, Ephesians, continuously allow yourselves to be being filled with the Spirit. Because that's where your strength comes from. That's where your joy comes from. That's where your patience comes from. That's where your courage is going to come from. I'll finish with this. Over the years, I have spoken, taught, preached on the subject of the Holy Spirit many, many, many times. And it seems like in most every one of those settings, there's a combination of responses in the room. Some there is a registered, and whether it's spoken, there's a sense of resonating that's true. That's right. That's life. But then there are others that it's like when the subject of the Holy Spirit comes up, it's like an acrylic invisible shield 
goes up between where you sit and this pulpit. It's as if the things that are spoken, (laughs) that are the heart of God, that I want to believe are propelled by something of the fire of God, it's like it hits that bulletproof shield in between your seat and here, and they ricochet back. And that breaks my heart. Because somewhere along the line, Satan has lied. Satan has convinced you that either you don't need the empowering daily of the Spirit of Jesus, or if you sell out, if you, if you say, Lord, fill me, he's going to do something weird, crazy, and nutso, and it would embarrass you. Satan has painted lies to try to keep you from embracing the greatest power and the most awesome source of personal pleasure and delight that you will ever know. And it is important that whenever I start getting a check about just from the reading of these words and we, we can freak out, it's the cry, Lord, would you dismantle the lies that I have believed about who you and your spirit really are? He's the spirit of the lover of your soul. He's the spirit of the one who went after you, tracked you down, won you with his love, brought you to himself. He will do nothing other than drench you with the loving life of his presence. Some folks will say, well, I know I'm going to heaven. I've asked Jesus into my heart as my Savior and Lord. I just don't know about this Holy Spirit business. Please don't stay there. Please don't stay there. That's where your power is. Again, that's where your joy is. That's where the life is, is in what the Spirit of Jesus is able to release within our hearts unto him. Freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Another way to translate that freedom is the word independence. Where the Spirit of the Lord is at work, he's working a work of independence, dependent from the things that we feel like we've got to have place of freedom for the spirit. You want to be free? Sometimes a place of freedom is a scary place. Sometimes it's better just be bound up up to your throat in tough expectations. At least we're familiar with them. (laughs) At least we're familiar with our prison cell. Lord, fill me. When you pray that prayer, he starts doing the work of setting you free from places that we may not even know we were bound. The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare. That can be blood kin. That can be employees, employers, professional, whatever. The fear of man brings a snare. You watch him set you free by degrees over time of the fear of man. Somebody who used to be able to blow up, freak out, threaten you with never seeing you again, and it just caused you to weather wither. You, you, you hear that? You go, well, you know, what else you got there? Dude? What else you got? I'm not trying to be ugly, but you don't own me anymore. I've been bought with a price, and the Spirit of Jesus lives in my heart, and by his grace, I'm going to run hard after him. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, as we Bring our time to 
or close at least this verbal part of it. I'm, I know we got playoff stuff going on this afternoon. I know all that stuff happening. You get out of here and go beat the Methodist to, you know, to Taco Cabana or whatever down here. We got all that stuff working when we leave here. But would you walk out here, out of here praying, putting a French fry to your mouth, finding a parking place, going home? Lord, fill me. Lord, would you fill me with your spirit? I want to know what that man's talking about. I want to know what Paul was talking about. I want to know what that was that caused those folks in Acts to be they were, be the way they were. Lord, fill me. Here's a key. He especially wants to fill you where you're low. Especially wants to fill you where you leak. <laughs> that may be patience. That may be self-control. That may be mercy. That may be determination to stay with a task. That may be a dream. Lord, I feel like I've lost my dream. I don't know why I'm here. Lord, fill me. Where you are low or where you tend to leak, Lord, fill me with your spirit. This is one of those I dare you kind of messages, you know. It's like the Lord just saying, come on. Trust me. I dare you. See if this works. See if it's real. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for the words on the printed page that we can go back to again and again and again and seek your insight and your understanding. Lord, our cry is the cry of Evan Roberts and those young preachers, young women and men. 1904, 1905 in the nation of Wales. Lord, send the Holy Spirit for Christ's sake. Send the Holy Spirit for Christ's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.